Welcome to the Tea Room. I'm Kate Swanell. In my everyday work as a GP, it's really becoming apparent. Like if you have money, the kind of care that I can organise for you is vastly different from my patients who are living on pensions and are unemployed. It gets really uncomfortable. That was Dr Liz Sturgis, a GP and Senior Research Fellow at Monash University School of Primary and Allied Healthcare. Liz and Dr Tim Senior, who is a GP and the Medical Advisor for the RACGP on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health, have established a new specific interest group at the College on Deprivation and Poverty. Their aim is to support GPs working with disadvantaged populations and to give their work some badly needed visibility and credit. I'm delighted to welcome Tim and Liz to the Tea Room today. Tell me about this new special interest group. Why do we need a special interest group on deprivation and poverty? The first time I sort of started thinking about it particularly was reading the work of the Dependent GPs in Glasgow quite a few years ago now. They took the 100 most deprived practices in Glasgow in Scotland and started talking to all the GPs there and they sort of described the the work that they were doing and the challenges and the solutions to that. And I was working on the other side of the world in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and thought, goodness me, that sounds remarkably similar. The sort of crossover that there was then in what we were seeing that was as a result of deprivation and poverty became really a- apparent to me at that point. And then I think it was amplified with the when the COVID pandemic came through and hit Australia and particularly hit hard in the suburbs that we knew it was going to hit hard in, where people were essential workers, they were earning less, there was housing overcrowding, they had more rates of chronic disease already. And that was predictable. And then it happened exactly as as was predicted. And the practices that were at the forefront of that, that we saw regularly in the alerts of COVID outbreaks, they were right at the forefront of that and having to source their own PPE and having to sort of manage patients with the pre-existing complexity as well. It became more acute then that the support that GPs working in those areas wasn't very visible and actually needed to be. So there's overlap with lots of other areas of health equity in Australia, such as rural and remote medicine, such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, refugee and migrant health, but not a complete overlap. And so we thought there was a, a gap that people weren't talking about, but also GPs working really hard in these areas without being very visible and without the support. We really are kind of looking to our colleagues in in Scotland. They've done amazing work over there and it's kind of the the holy grail of grassroots work that flows in all the way through to policy change. They've really had some amazing outcomes there. I guess the difference with this um, specific interest group is that we're sort of starting at a national level and with a a national organisation in, as we, you know, we're all members of the RACGP. So it would be a different kind of flavour and focus probably from how the deep end in Scotland has gone around their work, tipping our hat to our great colleagues there. One of the early tricky things that Tim and I were negotiating is is the name of this specific interest group. You know, we've, we've got deprivation and poverty and it's kind of fascinating even like to ourselves to, you know, say that word poverty and focus on poverty, it's really uncomfortable. And I think, you know, Australia, we're a really wealthy country, but we're noticing more and more and more that gap between people who are living in poverty um, and those who aren't. In my everyday work as a GP, it's really becoming apparent. Like if you have money, the kind of care that I can organise for you is vastly different from my patients who are living on pensions and 
are unemployed, it, it gets really uncomfortable. What is the specific interest group going to offer GPs? What what can they expect to find within that group? I think first and foremost, we're a peer-to-peer support. So for, for GPs working around the nation in our most disadvantaged communities, we you know, it can be really stressful, you know, that, that feeling of there's only so much care I can offer for my patient when they have no access to so many things through yeah. to just the everyday grind of um, Centrelink paperwork and the rest of it. I think that will be one of the most important things the group can offer. Certainly emphasize that, that many of the GPs that I've spoken to working in this area, they feel quite isolated and they don't really feel that what they do is visible to other people. And I think being able to say from a national representative organization like the College of GPs, setting education and standards, being able to say, we, we see your work, we value your work. We actually understand the, the challenges and will offer peer support from colleagues for you in, in doing that. And I think that's going to be yeah. a crucial thing. Then in, in being able to do that, that actually feeds into being a place of expertise from these grassroots GPs where that can inform college policies and college submissions so that we can actually enhance the way that the health system sees poverty and and the policies that that go towards enhancing healthcare delivered to communities living in poverty. There's so much talk at the moment about general practice, Medicare reforms, how we keep general practice viable in its current state. How much does poverty and deprivation play into that debate? Clearly, GPs are not being paid what they should, but the work you do for, for communities that are living in poverty is surely more more like charity work every day in many ways. How how do how does that all play into this? It's a really good question. I, I feel like it's a it's becoming a perfect storm or has become a perfect storm where the way that general practice is funded now is a combination of government rebates and patient yep. contributions. Now that's fine where patients can pay contributions, but where patients can't pay contributions, then general practice becomes unviable. And yet the care that's required for patients is actually more complex because there's more disability, more multimorbidity, which needs longer consultations, which needs more health professions and other and other agencies and services being involved in care. So precisely where general practice and primary care has the most to contribute, it's actually the opportunities for funding it is is the least. That's not being grasped but in the discussion around bulk billing. It's actually a discussion not about bulk billing, but about health funding and about the inverse care law and sort of getting resources to where they're most needed. And that's been a bit invisible in the in the current debate. Did either of you see any hope in the Strengthening Medicare Task Force report? I, I mean, I think there's a lot of really good sentiments there. I mean, there's there's not much in there you could disagree with kind of on that yeah. high level. Um, but, Motherhood statement. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of, you know, the detail of, you know, sitting with patients day to day. And I appreciate maybe that's not what the report set out to do. I would agree. There's, the sentiment is is fine and it's it's how that supports GPs and primary healthcare teams in actually providing care for their patients and how the data and infrastructure enhances care. And that remains to be seen whether that's been understood properly or not. One of the things, yeah. Tim, and I've had some little chats around is, you know, the idea of a, of a team environment in primary care. And I mean, I'm really lucky to work in a practice where I pretty much have that team and it's fantastic. And I totally know it brings better care to patients, yeah. but it's not cheap. 
So no. if we think that really good team care is cheaper, I don't think that's true in the short term. You kind of need to invest more in your team, have a really good team working around a patient. In the short term, that's more expensive, but you get your savings down the track. A lot of the stuff I hear that's kind of flagged as a team care is actually someone else doing someone else's task, you know? Giving a bit of my task to someone else doesn't necessarily lead to better patient outcomes, even though it might look like it's saving money and time in the short term. Tim, I don't know if that's, is that true in the Aboriginal space as well, in the Indigenous health space? Definitely. And again, we're, it's an example of where team-based care can work really well. Mm. And it doesn't work really well by saying to people, oh, look, we don't actually need GPs here. We, we need other people to do task substitution for GPs. It works really well because the roles are expanded in the team. We have the capacity to, to work in a multidisciplinary way. So people get really good dietitian advice. They get dietary, they get really good nursing care, a coordination of care, not that there's someone else doing prescribing or there's someone else like tasks are, are removed. And, and so exactly as Liz says, the difference between multidisciplinary team care and yeah. uh, task substitution, and you have to fund all the members of the team. You don't, you don't just switch yeah. to a lower salary member and pretend that that's multidisciplinary team care. Because yeah. the other thing about, about teamwork and I haven't seen this much in healthcare literature, but from, you know, corporate places or, you know, manufacturing and things like that. Whenever you make a team of people, you kind of have each person's role. But on top of that, for the good team, you also need time and money for the team to interact with each other. More yes. members of the team you put in, the more difficult that interaction can become. And you actually tip over to a point where your team is too big and it actually becomes less efficient and effective than a smaller team. It's possible to lose the patient voice in all of that as well. Like I regularly have patients where they have yet another team member calling them or speaking to them. I'm not sure who that was. And I'm a bit wary about all these different people coming and talking to me about my health. And we can lose sight of the importance of a relationship with a trusted healthcare professional or two or three by bringing in all these multiple team members and people going, well, that's not, that's actually not, providing good quality care i want two or three people that i can trust and then they introduce them to other team members as as necessary but if we forget the relationship then actually particularly with people who don't have much money for going around to all these different people the relationship what enables them to access care well so where is the specific interest group at is it set up is it ready to go we're set up and ready to go we have our Kind of first group of founding members. So the process at the college is you you get a group of about 20 people together to propose the SIG, as they're fondly called, um, and we're ready to roll. So we will have sort of regular meetings and opportunities for the group to meet together. Um, But we've already had a number of really interesting email conversations. Tim's already put a, a first policy document out there for the RACGP. We've got some presentations lined up at conferences this year. To me, the the need is pretty obvious when things start, you know, launching so quickly like that. I've been really struck by how welcoming and how interested people are in the establishment of the SIG. It's really good to see the college interested in this area because it, it is such a hidden and invisible thing. And I think we can have really good conversations with the policy people at RACGP and make our really disadvantaged communities front and centre 
of thinking. And I think there's a lot of groups who are, that we're really looking forward to collaborating with around sort of different health equity issues. So there's people with interest in disability, in refugee and migrant health, of course, rural and remote, Aboriginal social talent, and poverty cross-cuts all of that. And the other opportunity, the changes to CPD from Upper and the, and the Medical Board, health equity is also quite visible in that too. So we're going to look at opportunities for collaboration and, and making sure that, that GPs, particularly GPs where we're this within the scope of practice, have the opportunity to take part in college and SIG activities and record that for their for their CPD as well. So that the people who feel really highly skilled and well trained in this area. Because there's there's yeah. particular skills that actually really benefit working in this area. My thanks to Dr. Tim Senior and Dr. Liz Sturgis for talking with us today about their new specific interest group at the RACGP on deprivation and poverty. I'm Kate Swanell. Thanks for joining us in the Tea Room. See you next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.